This talk is supported by SmallPDF, the successful Swiss scale-up making PDF easy for over a billion people around the world since 2013. You may remember them from a previous podcast we hosted with their CEO, Dennis Just. Their mission is to make PDFs and life easy for people across the world, a mission made possible with their 90-plus amazing employees across Zurich, Belgrade and Barcelona. If you want to join this fast-growing Swiss scale-up, visit smallpdf.com forward slash Swisspreneur and apply. So we think that we can deliver people in one hour, two hours, everywhere in the globe. Maybe it will be 10 times more people flying. And if this system will be not carbon neutral, then we can become the largest emitter of the carbon in the world. So it's not sustainable. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Mikhail, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you here today. Thank you for inviting me. You're the founder and CEO at Destinus, an aerospace company building hyperplanes to provide the fastest transportation on Earth. That's just a mind-blowing concept that, of course, we're going to talk about in a minute. But first, I want to learn more about your personal background. You originally come from Russia, and you're, in your university studies, you combined physics and also business. Why did you decide to combine the two? That's not a very common combination. I actually didn't combine it, so I studied physics, and that was beginning of 90s, where it was difficult to build the career in physics in Russia. Mm-hmm. So I started my entrepreneurial career uh, being a basically a student and built a couple of companies until I realized that I don't have enough knowledge also on the business side, financial side. So I got like a, in a way, several, you know, like educations uh, to be more familiar with the business. So it was basically, you saw, oh, there's a lack. I want to also learn more about that. And then you just jumped right into it. Yep. Fantastic. And of course, we are recording this interview in April in 2022. Of course, you know, if we talk about Russia, everybody also thinks about the Ukrainian war that is happening right now. How, how do you feel about that? What does that do to you at the moment? So it is def- definitely a tragedy uh, for U- U- Ukraine and also actually for Russia because... Uh, we've been building democratic and westernized Russia for three decades and uh, was trying to build a country which can be the family of the like Europe and be part of the Europe. And uh, what we see, unfortunately, for the last, I would say, 10 years plus, I mean, it started definitely when Mr. Putin became a president, but especially it's accelerated after 2012 when he came back after Medvedev. We're moving in a very wrong direction, and uh, finally, country not only become authoritarian or totalitarian, but also it's moved to the, to the fascism. So basically, trying to tell to the people around how to live. Mm-hmm. And for, let's, let's say, for all uh, people in Russia who don't agree with this, it's also start to be pretty difficult and tough, because in Russia, even for calling this a war, you can get up to 15 years in a prison. That's crazy. If you just call this a war. The situation that you described, you know, the change more going towards a fascist regime, basically, was it also one of the reasons why you then decided to leave Russia and study abroad? You went to Stanford, for example. Um, 
I was involved in a opposition activity since beginning of 2000s. So I was helping, for example, to Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who was a, the billionaire who sit more than 10 years in a prison. Uh, I was helping him actually before he was put in a prison beginning of 2000s to open, open Russia Foundation in Siberia. And then over the years, I was helping to basically every democratic force. I mean, I was just like, let's say, the medium-sized entrepreneur, but the big guys tried not to help because for them it was politically difficult. And right. the people like me, the basically middle entrepreneurs, helped them financially. But until maybe 2012, 2014, it was accepted activity. I mean, the people who was involved in opposition activity was not treated extremely, let's say, harsh. It, somebody is mm -hmm. like Mikhail Khodorkovsky. But after 2014, when the situation changed, when basically if you are not agree, you are against, yeah? Then it's become uh, tough. I mean, it was political assassinations, like Mr. Nemtsov was assassinated just in front of the Kremlin. And then at that time, uh, I decided to immigrate from Russia because mm -hmm. I understood the first I don't have any business future because with my political views, it was basically impossible to do to do the business. But uh, also the the personal, I mean, finally now it's just dangerous personally. So I've not been in Russia for many, many years. And how did then this international education, you know, at Stanford, for example, shape you? Because I can imagine that also has an impact on you that does something to you when you then go out there in the world yeah. and travel and live in other places. I've been in a different international, like, uh, you know, educations or courses since, like, basically I remember in the beginning of 2000s, I was part of the Russian entrepreneurs who've been in George, Georgetown University. Then I studied in the university, National University of Singapore for, like, summer course. And then when I moved to U.S., I take executive uh, uh, MBA in Stanford. And uh, first, I mean, it definitely helped me to shape myself as a businessman and entrepreneur. I know that this is a view that, hey, the, the MBA is good only for managers. Right. <laughs> but actually, it's not true. It's actually not true. I mean, like, there are some brilliant entrepreneurs who basically, without any education, build a great companies, but I think it's rather exception. Right. So if you really want to be experienced entrepreneur, if you want to build a company and be focused on the main thing, like how to build your product, how to build your technology, how to create competitive barriers. You need to know other things and and you need to basically master in other things mm -hmm. like uh, the personal management, the finance, HR, uh, leadership. If you don't know this, then you basically, instead of building your company and your product, you're learning the stuff. So and business school and good business education gave you this, uh, basically it's a basic education that's necessary for the business. Right. And you also have a very impressive track record as a founder. You already built multiple companies. And I just wonder, was entrepreneurship always there? Was that always the obvious career choice for you? Or where does your entrepreneurial drive come from? Uh, I think it's a combination of two things. First, uh, back in the 90s in Russia, I didn't have too many options to build a career. Mm -hmm. So... Because to build a career at that time, it, it, it was kind of wild capitalism. Yeah. So right. difficult to build a career somewhere, you know, and you build to build, you got to build something by yourself or you need to go abroad and, you know, basically build a, 
your future outside. But at that time, and Russia was very interesting because they, it was like Wild West economy was booming, new opportunities. We've been able, like, for example, to build a retail company from one store to hundreds to 10,000 people in 10 years. I mean, how we can do this? That's amazing. Uh, it's, it, was, it was amazing. It was an amazing time. Uh, at the same time, I started my first, let's say, entrepreneurial attempts when I was actually a student and schoolboy. Um, um, the first my first my like earnings was when I was a schoolboy. Uh, so I was like producing this, you know, pit pots. And, you know, this like a, in it was a, it was actually Soviet Union when this pit pots in Siberia was very important because you put the plants like potatoes, like cucumbers, tomatoes. And uh, grow this in a, inside 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 the, like your house. Mm-hmm. And then bef- and then you put it on open soil because like it's the spring is starting very late May right. yeah, in Siberia. And uh, this uh, uh, pit pots was very uh, uh, difficult to buy. You know, like it was we call it deficit. You know, everything was deficit. It was impossible to buy. So I decided to build it by myself, but not from the pit because we didn't have a pit, but from uh, the cow manure. Mm-hmm. So basically, I built a press, and uh, I spent like several weeks trying to find the proper mixture between between the sand, uh, between this like a, you know manure and stuff like this, before I started to build this like a good pots. And then I I was selling uh, like couple summers and uh, earned quite a lot of money, more than my parents, maybe several times, <laughs> by selling this manure pots. How old were you back then? Oh, 14 maybe, 13, 14. Crazy, and. Nowadays, you're active in the aerospace area. So I also wonder, where does that fascination come from? I mean, of course, you know, many people dream about, you know, flying planes or something like that. But when did that fascination for you about the aerospace uh, area really start? It's actually a very interesting observation. But if you look at the first generation of the um, space or aerospace founders, even like Elon Musk and Bezos and... Right. and uh, um, um, the Virgin, like Branson, they've not been actually professional aerospace engineers. And uh, this is only a few examples, but actually it was much more. And I think the reason was that uh, uh, they and, and, and I also, I, can't, I don't want to put myself with a, with a line with them, but, you know, not being a professional aerospace engineers, we didn't know how hard it is. <laughs> Do you think that this helps? I think if we knew, like, back at that time how hard it is, it actually was, I would say, 10 times harder than initially I was thinking. When I started my first company, it was much harder. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, over the time, you just become more professional and just know how to do the things, and you just feel that you can you can do the stuff. Uh, but uh, I was an enthusiast of the space since I was a child. Uh, my generation, I call the Voyager generation. So when I was a schoolboy, the Voyagers, it was approaching the planets, giants, the Jupiter, Saturn, okay. uh, and you can. It was no internet at the time, but I was in the library and see these photos of these breathtaking moons of the Jupiter. You know, Io, Callisto, Ganymede, Europa, Titan. I know the, the Saturn moon, and uh, and uh, it was so unbelievable that something that was created by humans was there. And since that time, I definitely had a you know, addiction, and uh, I was building small planes, small rockets. So when I sold my retail company and uh, had a little bit of money to to kind of play different stuff, I decided mm-hmm. to start my first aerospace company. Amazing. 
And then actually in, in 2021, actually not that long ago, you founded Destinus as a solo founder. And I wonder what you actually want to do is you want to reduce the distance. You want to basically make it possible for logistical goods to be transported to any place in the world within less than two hours. I mean, that claim already is mind-blowing, but what actually led you to that? Was distance ever a problem to you, or why did you decide to tackle that problem? We, uh, as a humans, the measure, we measure distance not by kilometers, but by hours, mm-hmm. you know, or by days, you know, all days maybe, days or weeks, because we say, hey, it's like two hours of flight, three hours of flight. And uh, by flying faster, finally, we shrink our globe because then distance becoming smaller. And um, it's not that something uh, was not thought before. I mean, even during the Second World War, the German engineer Zanger was designing the rocket plane, which supposedly should be like bombing the United States and landing in Japan, yeah? Mm-hmm. Basically flying through the space. And then the humans built uh, these like, uh, you know, uh, deadly machines called ICBM, international, like intercontinental missiles, you know, with the thousands of them. And uh, the idea of using the rocket technologies uh, to build extremely fast plane was for a long time. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And even SpaceX want to use Starship for point-to-point transportation. But we want to build something that uh, looks like a plane so you can land and take off from the normal airstrip, from, from airports. And what is interesting, it starts to be possible or it will be possible only when hydrogen will be available. Because with the hydrogen, you can build incredibly efficient engines, both air breathing and rocket engines, which is, can be also very reusable. And also you can use the hydrogen as a cooling for your active cooling system, because by flying so fast, one of the main, main problems on hypersonic speed is aerodynamic heating. So it's really only the, the hydrogen that makes that possible, what you're planning to do, that you can fly that fast, but also that efficient to a certain degree. Hydrogen, definitely uh, one of the main enablers, uh, because in a world without hydrogen or without available affordable hydrogen, which hopefully will be affordable in like several years, mm-hmm. it would be impossible to build this type of the engines and the systems. Right. And in that regard, you also have a nice positive side effect, right? Because with the hydrogen, you're basically CO2 neutral when you're flying. This is a very important because we don't know uh, but quite possible that new innovation in, inno- in innovation that we have now, like you know, this, uh, the aviation become much closer to the people with the super mobility and then the faster uh, and uh, will be hopefully cheaper because it will be autonomous. Maybe will be pe- people will be using aviation much more frequently than in the past. Look what happens in the 50s when aviation turbine was invented, when the planes become much more reliable and mm-hmm. safer and cheaper. Uh, and planes are start to be affordable for basically anybody, for, for middle right. class. Before before this, uh, the planes only for the rich people or for militaries. Yeah. So we think that we can deliver people in one hour, two hours, everywhere in the globe. Maybe it will be 10 times more people flying. And if this system will be not carbon neutral, then we can become the largest emitter of the carbon in the world. So yeah. it's not sustainable. What do you think about the timeline there? When will the hydrogen be available to actually make that transportation available for the masses? What we see, uh, based on our discussion with the hydrogen producers, uh, with uh, regulators also, in the three, five years, we will have 
hydrogen available on uh, some selected airports with a reasonably low price. And uh, something between like five and 10 years, uh, it will start to be available almost at any airports. And I think after 10 years, um, hopefully it will start to be one of the main primary fuels uh, for, for aviation. Because you see, even the majors like Airbus is developing you know, classical planes. They want to build it hydrogen. Once that will then happen, don't you also fear more competition in the market? Or do you still think that there is a, you know, a good angle, a good USP that you can take with your own hyperplane? Uh, what we are doing is very hard and uh, very unconventional. So I think it will be the same like with the first generation of space entrepreneurs. I think the classical guys think it's impossible. Yeah. And in that regard, they probably don't even try as hard as you do. Yeah. I think they will wake up only when we already will be so far. <laughs> nice. Please also share a bit who will actually benefit from Destinus planes, basically. At the moment, you will focus on the transportation of logistics, later maybe even people, yeah. flights. So please elaborate a bit more who will benefit from your offering, basically. The world is connected with uh, you know, logistics. And basically, now you see more and more uh, even industrial processes is built as a just-in-time. Yeah? So right. when you can deliver fast, you can actually reduce a lot of expenses. For example, you are the oil rig somewhere. And uh, if some critical part is failed, you can basically stop the entire oil rig. So you need either to have a, you know, the pile of the, of the stocks, or if you can deliver this very fast, you may not need to have this pile of the stocks. So for the just-in-time delivery, for emergency delivery, for perishable things like uh, isotopes for cancer curing, for the human organs, mm -hmm. for something like expensive, uh, which have limited time of the consumption, like, you know, the expensive tuna fish from Spain for the sushi, yeah, which can cost like $1,000 per one kilogram. Mm -hmm. uh, for, for, for all of this, the time is very important. Uh, but we think also that eventually we can be comparable also by price with the conventional aviation. So it means we can substitute in a greater sense, almost all conventional transport aviation. And uh, definitely for humans, it will be nothing more exciting than just have a chance to fly to Tokyo to your friend, have a you know dinner and fly back and sleep at, <laughs> at your home in the future. Yeah, it, it would be like a different life. On Absolutely. Earth. Yeah, we're also going to talk about that in a minute because I'm very curious to see how the world will look like with hyperplanes all around us. One thing I also wondered is, you were active in a very international setting. You had companies, you know, in California, in Canada. Why did you decide to choose Switzerland as the headquarter for Destinus? Uh, it's, a, it's a good question, yeah. And um, I spent almost 10 years in the United States, in California, and definitely this is a very vibrant place. And I think it formed me as an entrepreneur. I mean, after Siberia, after Russia, which also was a little bit Wild West, you know, at that time, then I came to California, which uh, in aerospace was very wild west at that time. So I remember I was translating uh, Elon Musk to head of the Russian Space Agency for three hours when the, nobody knew actually Elon Musk. It was 2011 or 2012, it was very early days. And I know all these like, first guys who built it, I met with you know, Elon Musk, with Bezos, had a dinner with Branson at the time when nobody knew about you know, that they're doing this stuff. Mm -hmm. So it was a very cool time. Um, but what I see now, it's a time for Europe to rise. 
Europe was lacking, lagging like US in many, uh, let's say, entrepreneurial endeavors. Look, in, in Europe, you don't have your own like Google, no own Facebook, like uh, there are no basically own Apple, so no infrastructure. And um, I think it was because here's like uh, the tolerance to failure is much less than in California, in the US. Mm-hmm. And so the entrepreneurs was very cautious and don't didn't try to think big. But now I think the Europe is actually start to be more interesting place. It's like in US 20 years ago, where really people see that it's possible. So you can get the brilliant engineers because you have less competition. The investors after especially coronavirus can invest anywhere. For mm-hmm. my previous company, I raised the pipe before IPO from my home, you know, 150 million without any roadshow, which was impossible. Right. And now I raised money, basically, I didn't meet with majority of my investors face to face, only through, uh, you know, Zoom and Teams. So the time is different. You can really build your business where it makes sense. And here's less competition, more support from the governments, better access to the talent pool, and capital is now global. I have majority of my investors from US, uh, somebody from Europe, you know, from Middle East, from Asia. Mm-hmm. So uh, the capital become very global. That, that's a very interesting observation that the geographical location plays less and less of an important role. Do you think Switzerland then in that regard, you know, with our life quality that we have here, is that helpful for you in any way to attract the best talent? Or what role does Switzerland is, you know, a high quality living place play in that regard? Um, you see, like, uh, uh, California, it's uh, the most expensive place in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So in the Bay Area, to buy the house, it's impossible, basically, if you yeah. not, like, uh, have good options or you're not founder uh, or venture capitalist. But still, people go in there and working because it's a place with opportunities, it's high quality of life. And if you really need to attract somebody extremely highly qualified, if you're in California, you can attract it. If you are in, I would say, somewhere in the, you know, Northern Dakota, yeah, it would be difficult to get everybody. You know, you can still probably get people, but not already everybody. So California was universal magnet. And the Switzerland is the same uh, because it's the highest possible quality of life. It's democratic country. It's, uh, you know, it's proximity of basically all major European Cities, it's uh, international, so people who speak English or German or French or Italian can feel like at home here. Yeah, so you can, mm-hmm. for example, our office is Canton de Vaux, uh, which is uh, close to German-speaking, French-speaking. So you can you can pick. I mean, you can go with your kids on the German-speaking. You can be French-speaking. You can right. go to international school, uh, which is very important. And uh, I think in the modern world, the quality of the life for highly qualified people is very important. This is the reason why Switzerland. Despite it's a very expensive place, uh, it's one of the most attractive places for, for businesses. Perfect. If you need to build a great website design or would like to upgrade your existing site, Tasnadi & Co. are a digital agency with expertise in building websites fast and efficiently. I can tell you from my personal experience working with them at Rentouch that they have an incredibly competent and responsive team. The tool they use is Webflow, a no-code website builder with growing popularity. And this means you get a clean code and no restrictions on how the website looks. Your design can be customized to exactly how you envision it, unlike what happens with theme-based website builders. It's also very easy and cost-effective to maintain, edit, and expand your site. 
and you can have a simple website up and running in a week for a very reasonable fee. Go to tasnadi.net forward slash webflow to find out more. Again, that's T-A-S-N-A-D-I dot net forward slash webflow. I also want to talk about the challenges that you faced along the way so far of building Destinus. Now, although it doesn't seem like it has been a long time, like one year, basically, there's so much that happened. And I want to start with the complexity and difficulty to actually build hyperplanes. How do you go about that? I mean, that's crazy. You build a prototype in just four months, I think. How the hell do you pull that off? That's like next level. Um, I think the main like uh, difference between us and more classical players that we built not only airframe, like, you know, m- most, let's say, uh, plane producers, like, you know, this great company, Pilatus, you know, they're building mm-hmm. excellent planes, but in aviation, it's very rarely the same company built uh, airframe and the engine, yeah, usually by engine. Right. Uh, in our situation, because we really try to change the paradigm, we need to build also engine by ourselves because we cannot buy these engines. Uh, it's like a SpaceX. They are building engines by themselves. They cannot come to Aerojet Rocketdyne and say, hey, build engine for us. No, they need to build engine uh, by themselves. It, it makes our uh, stuff harder, but also simpler. Yeah, why? Because we can build this first engine prototypes, which is much smaller than the big one. So we can start with a small scale, like with a basically, mm-hmm. you know, half a ton, one ton, two ton thrust. Uh, which is a reasonably small engines that can be built. We don't need to build them extremely reliable. You know, we can build it with from, you know, simple materials. So it can last for hundreds of hours to test the stuff before we go to the next level of complexity. And then when we build the aeroframe, it's actually the smaller the aeroframe, it's easier and cheaper to build because everything is cheaper. The materials can be built cheaper, actuators, uh, the permissions and flying. So our first prototype was 50 kilograms, the second 150, the third will be, you know, a few hundred kilograms. And then the next one will be several tons. So we're growing. And uh, in planes, it's like this. I mean, you have plenty of people who can build, you know, 50, 100 kilogram uh, plane. You have several, maybe thousand who can build like a half a ton. You can you have like several dozens who can build like several ton vehicle, and only few who can build a big one. Yeah, and the beauty of us is that we can build uh, start from small and learn a lot uh, in basically how they behave the engine, how behave the vehicle, aerodynamics, and I think this iterative approach instead of like a, trying to say okay we initially immediately build something big. No, let's build something small and test. Uh, this year we are building three prototypes which for the small company, less than 100 people, is incredible, but it's because we simplify rather than make it complex. I think the core here, uh, the focus on simplification. I think that's mind-blowing. You basically sort of, you know, applied the agile mindset to the aerospace industry, something that most people, as you mentioned before, like the big players, probably think is just not possible. In that regard, when do you think the hyperplanes will launch? Are they already flying or when can we see them flying around? Well, probably they are too fast to see, but we'll hear them probably. It's actually very good that you told about uh, Agile because our company built basically with the same model like many software companies. We use, in a bigger sense, a Spotify approach with a, uh, basically all company built on a several teams, which is each team with a multidisciplinary People focus on a, some like a tasks to build engine, to build airframe, the next iteration plane, 
And then we have chapters with engineering, uh, uh, you know, excellence areas like, you know, mechanical, electrical engineering, propulsion. Mm -hmm. And also we are doing this in an agile manner with a, you know, sprints, eight-week sprints. So our eight-week sprints, it's, right. it's, it's exactly like software, basically. Yeah. And we try to release the new stuff. Uh, maybe not new engine, but, you know, next iteration of the design, you know, basically eight weeks for each team. And it makes this our pace, uh, the way how we how we move it. So I think we can have some first product for what we can get money in a two, three years. Mm -hmm. It will not be the commercial hyperplane. It probably will use for some special things like reconnaissance, you know, observation, test. Yeah. Um, because for real commercial use, you need to have certification. And uh, first, the certification procedures uh, is still like a dis are designing, like in the process by, by regulators. And mm -hmm. it will take like a few years actually to go through certification. But we see the multiple special needs markets where we can already start to generate early revenue and test our vehicles and fly before we move to the full commercial, before we can like, uh, you know, take off from Zurich airport. You know? Of course, yeah. Yeah, that's actually also one point I wanted to talk about, this regulatory challenges. I mean, I understand there are probably difficult and different processes between the logistics transportation, the, the logistic flights and the people flights, the commercial flights, so to speak. How do you actually go about that? Are there any big risks that you invest a lot of time in developing a product and then they don't give you the certification? Do you have any safety challenges that you need to pay attention to there? Because I can imagine that's a very complex matter. How do you solve that? I think in general, uh, the regulation and safety in aviation is easier than, for example, in the cars. Yeah. Okay. Look in the driverless cars, how hard it is, you know? And yeah. the reason is because the cars is single dimensional. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's two dimensions. And then it's like uh, everybody driving, you know, like, you know, the smart, not smart people, you know, mm -hmm. you know, not drunk, drunk, you know. Sure. So uh, then you need to be very cautious when you build an autopilot, stuff like this. In aviation, it's uh, simpler. First, you have like uh, three dimensions. And uh, we um, are opening the new dimension because we're going to fly at much higher altitude, mm -hmm. you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 kilometers, where the actual conventional planes are not flying. No nobody there. there. Nobody, yeah. nobody there. So yeah. it's a, it's a, basically you like open the new roads, you know, new highways. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and also we can, uh, uh, you know, cross the, the like a populated, let's say, aerospace in basically five minutes, yeah? So and then we go out of 10 kilometers and it's already there, we're nobody there. Yeah. And also all aviation moving in the same directions. So uh, hydrogen safety, yeah? This like all aviation, like now try to implement this uh, regulation. Hydrogen is actually safer than kerosene because in case of the, let's say, unfortunate case of the, for example, crash, the kerosene mm -hmm. is burning for hours and hydrogen just go up. Yeah, it's light. It's never stick, you know, you right. don't have fire after hydrogen. Uh, autopilots, this is a whole aviation moving to the direction. You know, even commercial airplanes want to have one pilot instead of two pilots mm -hmm. in a cockpit. Uh, the fast speed, it's also plenty of companies, you know. Uh, SpaceX, in US you have like a three, you know, uh, supersonic startups, and then including the Boeing, you have at least like a two or three hypersonic startups. And uh, in a... Uh, Last time with the Concord US, who actually killed the opportunity flying over the US for the Concord because there was no competition. And now because US basically predominantly it's US startups doing this. So US actually is more active. And then because everybody just copied what US doing, so hopefully it will be much easier this time. Absolutely. So there has been 
things have been done in the past that should sort of, you know, make the way free for you to uh, excel there on that way. Yep. Another third part that I want to talk about is, of course, the capital intensiveness of your startup. I mean, obviously, you do need capital. Aerospace is not a cheap space to be active in. You also mentioned it's 10 times harder than you imagine. I can imagine it's probably also 10 times more expensive than people think at the beginning. You raised 29 million uh, seed round so far in February 2022. You are currently fundraising. Please elaborate a bit how capital intense uh, the whole space and the development of such a hyper play actually is. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, the hard tech, the reason why it's called hard tech, because it's hard. <laughs> and this is the reason why you see in aerospace, the size of the rounds is much larger. You know, 29 mm -hmm. million for seed, it's pretty large for, let's say, a software company. Usually right. it's Series B for software. Yeah. Or at least it used to be the Series B. Yeah. I don't know, maybe Series A. Um, so uh, we need like hundreds of millions to basically confirm that basic technology is, I mean, it's not basic, you know, the, the technology is working. So build them engine prototypes, start to fly supersonic, mm -hmm. hypersonic, uh, to be able to demonstrate main subsystems and, and show that we can scale it up. And uh, hopefully already with this tech, we can build some MVP for special needs, like for reconnaissance test, you know, like a hypersonic test, high altitude tests for. So like a, with several hundred million, which more or less correspond to how much money do you need to build, for example, small rocket. If you look on, a, you know, um, rocket labs or uh, ABL space or relativity or uh, either aerospace, it's hundreds of millions. Yeah, well, they need mm -hmm. to build a rocket. We are in the same domain. To build a real commercial planes is billions. For sure, it's billions. Uh, but after we will be able to demonstrate that main technology is working, after we will have the first revenue with the MVP and can show that actually the customer interest, then uh, the several billion dollars will not be actually be command because look, you have like a you know the company which use like deliver food, deliver food, raising billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we can we can raise also. I really like your, again, agile approach there, right? Because you sort of de-risk to take on a lot of money now. And then if you occur, like if there are problems that come up, right? Then you need more money and that will sort of put your back to the wall. And you are basically, yeah, you face your investors and they can say yes or no. But the way that you're doing it with the small iterations, with the testing, you basically build trust, build proof to yeah. then be able to raise the bigger round once you have actually shown, hey, it's working, we can make that bigger now. I mean, the life of the entrepreneur on early stage, it's uh, you're like, a, you know, magician in a circus, you know? <laughs> you should always have like a new tricks from your sleeves, yeah? Every right. time, yeah? So you say, hey, I can do this, I can do this, you see? Yeah. And uh, yeah, this is, a, this is normal because we are in this like capital market where you need to demonstrate that you can build a team, you can build your product, where you can like uh, hit the milestones when the people can follow your track records. Mm -hmm. your existing investors, your potential investors, new investors. Right. And uh, when you do this with this agile approach, it's it's much cooler. And what I also noticed, like uh, moving from classical space, because my previous company was actually in space, all of them, to aviation, that in aviation, it's easier to make a, you know, like a small iterations because you are mm -hmm. launching by yourself, you are flying by yourself. While in space, especially in older days, you need to wait sometimes years to launch your vehicle to space it was so expensive and then yeah. you have your let's say you raise money 10 million and then half of this money actually spent to pay to i don't know like 
uh, Russian space agency to launch Soyuz or to SpaceX, yeah? yeah. And it was very painful, you know, to pay for these launches. Yeah, and then you need to wait like a months and, and years. And then also political stuff start to happen. That what happened with my previous company where just basically DOD decided, okay, you are you're you're fucking Russian and we don't want to launch your your, your system. Yeah. So and then mm-hmm. and here you control what you're doing, you don't need anybody. You're you know? way more independent. Oh, oh my God, this, I, I love it. I, I love it. Imagine. I just like a, don't have dependence. I don't like the government at all. And where do your investors come from? I mean, your vision, it's a game changer, right? If you can put that into reality uh, a few years later, the world will look differently if Destinus actually puts that out there and we all see and use and fly the hyperplanes. So who are your investors? Is it difficult to convince them about that vision? Are they eagerly excited to join you along that journey? Or is it more a financial return-driven method? Because it will be a game changer if it works with huge returns. What is sort of the motivation, the profile of the investors behind your company? It's it's interesting, but you know, um, this is like social network around every entrepreneur. You build your the social investor network. Yeah. And uh, definitely my first investors were my previous investors who invested in my previous companies. And uh, they basically knew me as an entrepreneur, they knew how I behave, and they put like a, a first money, uh, basically a trust, you know, without anything, just, you know, slides, me alone, you know, a few million, you know, and then I put some money, but they actually put, I raised money. And then over the time they see it and they they start, talk, they start to talk to others, they introduce me to other investors, I meet other investors, and then you just like grow your network mm-hmm. and uh, get it. At some stage, um, when we need so much money that basically it would be difficult to get this money from venture funds or from, then we can go to the places which can benefit from our existence. Like what places would that be? Um, for example, like uh, Saudi Arabia is building the new, yeah, this mm-hmm. is a new large city, city in, that, in the northern part of Saudi Arabia where they want to basically build it new mobility, new stuff. And this place is pretty far from all main things, you know, flying from New York to London, few hours flying from New York to New York, to San Francisco, to Tokyo, to Buenos Aires. It's it's, it's a pretty remote place. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but uh, they want to build a place with like Dubai, with zero taxes, with, uh, you know, good access to infrastructure inside the nation. It's actually pretty good climate because it's close to Sharm el-Sheikh, yeah? So mm-hmm. it's, it's a good climate there. Beautiful, beautiful, like a sea, the Red Sea. Uh, and many people would, uh, uh, live there if it would be logistically very easy to connect. Mm-hmm. This is the reason why Dubai developed their own Emirates, so the best air company in the exactly. world. Exactly, yeah. Because like uh, people live in Dubai but connected with everywhere. And can you imagine like uh, if you can connect a city like New York or Dubai with all the world within one, two hours, people can live there, pay no taxes or little taxes. They can go to work like, uh, especially with modern like, you know, Zoom teams, you don't need to fly every day. Uh, sure. You can fly once a day, you know, uh, uh, once a week to, to basically any place in the world uh, for one day, for two days. It can change the attractiveness of this place because it just make the globe smaller, you know. Now people can live, let's say, in Zurich and work uh, somewhere remote, you know, one hour by train, two mm-hmm. hours by train, go, you know. And now you can live in Neom or in Dubai or, you know, in Singapore, you know or in a Bali. <laughs> of course, yeah. The, the world will certainly look different if it gets smaller in that regard yeah. and you shorten that transportation yeah. time. And some of these places, they have vision, they have money. So we think that at some stage they can be one of our largest investors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense because you see it's basically shaping and changing the world as you know it today. Yeah. 
So what will be next for you? What will you focus on over the next 12 months? Of course, your fundraising round that is currently ongoing. What else will be on your on your plate? So we're going to start flying our second prototype, which is a larger, more powerful, which uh, finally can eventually fly out of the line of sight. So not just you know, around the airport, but you know for dozens mm-hmm. of kilometers. Uh, we will start to fly uh, not only we're now flying in, in Germany and like getting also approval in Switzerland, but we're going to start flying over the ocean in Spain where uh, we will be getting our permission to fly. So it's supersonic speed. So this year we start to ex- like a flying over the ocean for a few dozen kilometers initially with a subsonic prototype. And then later this year, early next year, I'm going to fly with a supersonic prototype which eventually will be also powered by our first engine, the hydrogen engine, mm-hmm. and uh, continue to grow, build a team, uh, because when you build a team in one year from basically nobody till 100 people, it's 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 challenging. Yeah, so there's a lot of mess, artificial mess, which is uh, which is good. It, crisis is always good for the company because then you see who is worse, something that you can easily check people. Yeah. Absolutely. And what do you think will your role look like in a year from now? What will you be focusing on? Um, I definitely like to be involved in technology a lot. And, yep. and I have like an exciting enjoyment to be involved in technology and be one of the, you know, our core team defining the strategy for the technology. Mm-hmm. Definitely setting up the big collaboration partnerships with uh, big logistics players, with a uh, big places where we will be putting our hyperports with a uh, you know national like interest players who need to use our technology this also will be important uh, with investors uh, the life of entrepreneurs is pretty busy because you basically need to spend a lot of time outside and inside and uh, you are ultimately responsible for everything that's happening in the company uh, but at the same time it's exciting you know it's when you see that something that was just your idea in mm-hmm. your brain, just spark of the thoughts, you know, then create it into something, then dozens of people, then hundreds of people, then maybe thousands of people, including you and people around, start to uh, live with a life that, you know, was take a burst out of your thought. It's a, it's a very, it's it's exciting. It's a, um, it's empowers a lot. I mean, this is a why we, why we like to be entrepreneurs. This is a, why I cannot imagine another life. I can imagine that must also be a very rewarding feeling if you then see that things that you imagined are put out in practice and change lives, basically. Yeah. In reality, um, like a probability to build a successful company is still pretty small, you know, so we should understand. Um, I think in general, I have a pretty high score with my last few companies. It's like 70, 80% success in a different scale. You know, the company is live, you know, continue to build stuff and live their life after me. Yeah. Even I was not uh, the guy who decided that I need to leave them, sure. <laughs> but they, they, they continue to live. And uh, I definitely believe and I hope that Destinus will become a big story with me and I want to run it and build one of the greatest company to work in, the company that can change the shape of the, how people live, can get a lot of contribution into like a new Europe, like capabilities into also like, you know, um, the new green economy. The perfect statement to end the conversation, I would say. Before we wrap up, I have two last parts for you. 
The first one is, I would like to learn about your personal resources and gadgets recommendations. Do you have any books or blogs, newsletters that you can recommend to our listeners? So uh, with my previous company, I've been in Y Combinator. And uh, actually, even it uh, sounds silly, but it's the greatest resource for all entrepreneurs with the different ideas, thoughts, how to like build a company, how to build a pitch, you know, how to hire. And uh, in many cases, I just like uh, sent to my team the links to Y Combinator. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. a really great piece of wisdom, yeah, in, uh, on on many on many stuff. Um, I don't have like a, too much time on reading, you know, uh, the books. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I used to read it, and I used to read it especially between the businesses when I stopped one. Yeah. Now it's like mostly focused on the building stuff. Um, I definitely listen a lot of like uh, podcasts, you know, but when, when you're driving, uh, uh, some books, but unfortunately, you can like uh, probably up to five, ten books per year, and this is a maximum what you can, what can, and I try not to now actually read about the business, try to read about something else because it's not because I know everything about, I don't know, but I think I know enough mm-hmm. not to read sure. <laughs> and rather to read something about something, uh, something interesting, you know, something yeah. that, because life is not only the business. Absolutely. We also have some rapid fire questions for you to wrap up. Um, I either give you a question or different options to choose from, and you have to answer in one sentence. You ready? Yep. What's your bed and wake up time? So I try to wake up at six and go to bed at 11. But coronavirus give us also opportunity to for the short nap. So now yeah. I'm accustomed, especially <laughs> if I have a time to go to have a 30 minutes nap during the day, it's actually helped a lot. Perfect. If someone offered you a round trip to space right now, where would you go? Um, over the moon. Over the moon? Uh. Yeah, because there are no atmosphere on the moon. So you can fly over the moon at maybe 10, 20 kilometers. So you can see the landing sites from Apollo, from from uh, Soviet Luna. And it would be, the, I think, the amazing, amazing flight. Awesome. Solo founder or co-founders? I don't have actually a strong opinion. It depends. For example, in some of my previous company, I was co-founders. Here I was a solo founder because I came kind of alone here. But even I'm like a founder, but I see all my team with whom I started the company, they're basically like a founder. So I think I like treat them in the same way. Yeah. Android or iOS? Yeah, iOS because I just like I was using this for many years and it's difficult to move to anything, anything else. Right. Russia, Switzerland, or Silicon Valley, or the US in that regard? Uh, Switzerland. Perfect. Mikhail, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure talking to you. Lots of success with the ambitious and very interesting and important project that you're working on, and all the best for you and Destinus. Thank you, and thank you for inviting. And uh, um, I hope you will help a lot to grow to entrepreneurial community here in Switzerland and in Europe. And I think like uh, Europe is only on the rise and entrepreneurial and next great companies like, you know, Apple, Facebook, Google will be born in Europe and can, can show that Europe can be also the great place for entrepreneurs. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.